Hey, this is Rob Orman. I am a physician coach and host of the Stimulus Podcast, what you're about to hear. This show focuses on stories, strategies, tactics, or sometimes just information that I think will help you thrive in your career and life. If you want to dive deeper, if you are feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, or have any kind of challenge in your career that you're finding it hard to navigate, one-on-one coaching might be just what you're looking for. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, and now as a full-time physician coach, my job is to help you get where you want to be. You can learn more at my website, roborman.com. The Awaken Aware Conference, January 13th through 15th. 2023 in Sedona, Arizona at the Enchantment Resort. Oh my gosh, cannot wait. We have limited space. It's going to be me, Scott Weingart, Ryan Cheney, the Wild Health crew, getting deep on tools and discussions for self-mastery. It's filling up, but there are still some spots, at least as far as the date of this recording. There is a link in the show notes that will take you to the site for that conference with the curriculum, details, and all the goodies. Aloha, my friends. How you doing? Hope you are well. We had our book club last month, and one of the attendees was an emergency physician, an ED doc. I guess he, I didn't ask how old he was. He was close to 60 and also a pure nocturnist, so only night shifts. Now, for those of you not in the know, Those two things are both a rarity, just by themselves, a 60-year-old ED doc and a nocturnist, and having them together, I guess you could say kind of a unicorn or maybe just being in really rarefied air. And I asked him how he did it, because physiologically, he could not be any younger. Night shifts, they're inherently challenging even when you're in your 20s. What was his practice? And he said a term or a phrase that I had never heard before, but it stuck with me and I've actually started using it. And he said, he focuses on parasympathetic nurturing, parasympathetic nurturing. When it's time to recover, he said, I fully embrace recovering. I meditate, exercise, I watch my diet. I take enough time off between shift blocks because when I go back to the emergency department, I see that as game day. I fully prep and then it's go time. I'm rested, not hungover. He really wanted to stress that. <laughs> not hungover going to shifts. Rested, not hungover. He caffeinates right beforehand, walks in the door, and the crowd goes wild. It is on like Donkey Kong. We're not talking about practice, We're talking about the game. Let me pause there for a moment. And just let you sit with that term parasympathetic nurturing, right? It's just pure self-care, recovery. But, but the dark side, the shadow here, is there, could there be a little part of you, maybe just a sliver, a little wafer mint that thinks that's kind of weak. Or even that that phrase is a little effet, that we should just be able to push through it. Come on, man, you're stronger than that. And I say a little part of you that might think that, you know, just a sliver, not the whole you, just a sliver, not by accident, because if you are listening to the show, chances are that self-care, living and working with intentionality, that those things are important to you. Something you either focus on or would like to focus on or focus on more, 
But I think, now, I might be talking out of school here, but I think that there is an implicit bias against self-care during work and sometimes surrounding work that gets entrenched in our minds during training. We grind, we push, and let me ask you this, my friends, what is one of the greatest insults that can be given to us when we are in training? What is it? That's weak. You are weak. Oh, right in the heart. And what's the subtext there? The subtext is that you are not willing to sacrifice yourself at all costs. So what do we do as part of our work ethos then? Because that subtext is there. We push and we push until the tank is empty. We'll come back to that. But first, let me give you a little bit of insight as to the origins of that practice, because there is no objective truth saying that medical training and the mentality of clinicians has to be the way that it is. Now, I'm not saying this is the only mentality we have, but this is a part of it. Like This is one of the building blocks that gets forged as we learn, as we train, as we become clinicians. So let's go back 150 years to the birth of medical residency training and Dr. William Halstead. He was a surgeon at Johns Hopkins University. And not just a surgeon, he was actually one of the four founders of Johns Hopkins. And many of his actions and opinions impact modern medical care. You can still feel the ripples. We're still surfing the waves that he set up 150 years ago. To wit, he early on embraced antiseptic technique in the OR. He was a pioneer in surgical methodology, in surgical suite sterility. Rubber gloves in the OR, and they used to be rubber. That was him. He was the guy. Incredible. We owe a lot to William Halstead. I mean, he was one of the giants in the halls of medicine, really setting in motion how things play out today, at least in the operating room, but also just in medicine. Because one thing Halstead noted was that the United States was deficient in high-level medical training. It was true. So he pioneered medical school methodology and, along with Sir William Osler, set the course for how house officers or trainees or residents went about their business. So you might be thinking, wow, this, is, this guy's badass. <laughs> this is super cool. But it gets a little bit darker, a little more shadow here. Because while all this was going on, Halstead was doing some interesting research on cocaine. So let me quote from History Daily. Quote, he used it on his own body to experiment with the effects of cocaine. He injected himself with the drug, ingested it, and even rubbed it in his eyes. The stimulating effects that the drug had on him gave Halstead almost endless energy, allowing him to work long hours, perform many surgeries, and train students. There was no need for food and sleep. There was only progress and cocaine. Okay, this might explain a little, but mm, let's go a little deeper. Quote, Halstead was not only a prodigious user, but also cocaine's best promoter encouraging his students to try it so that they too could keep up with the high standards and demands that Halstead set. He expected his residents to be on call 362 days a year and handle a workload that was difficult to maintain without artificial stimulants. That was, that was 362 days a year. I'm guessing maybe there were three holidays in there. Maybe 4th of July, Christmas, New Year's. I don't know. I don't know what, the, what those three were, but 362 days a year. Kokaine. When you wonder why we train like we do, this 
is or was one of the ingredients that set things in motion. Of course, it's not the only one. There are a lot of factors and built and changed and evolved, but this is one of the factors that set up the ethos of medical training. And another part of the picture is what it takes to get to this point. It takes sacrifice. It takes pushing when it feels like you can't push anymore, sucking it up, just putting your head down, getting the work done. It's an incredibly valuable skill, and I know that it has paid off for you many times. It is one of the tools that you have probably called on countlessly to get you where you are today. It's also incredibly valuable when you need a short-term burst. When it's really hitting the fan, it's just, I mean, you got to take care of business, so go for it. Put your head down. But it is not a long-term strategy for thriving. It remains, however, a significant part of the foundation of modern medical training and practice. Kind of like the only method, just grit it out. So let's get back to our unicorn, the six-year-old nocturnist who revealed that his strategy for career longevity was parasympathetic nurturing. I, I just, I love that because it has such a vibe of intentionality. And it wasn't like he was laying out this approach in 2010 when whatever was happening in 2010 was normal, right? I mean, the things sure weren't like easy. This was late 2022. This was right now during a global crisis in medicine, I think you could call it. Um, so many aspects of this. Right now, there is a triple pandemic, cold, flu, RSV, ooh, all those little bronchiolytics. Hospital volumes are at a level of extraordinary magnitude. There's nursing shortages, clinician shortages. People are at the end of their rope. There are patient factors. There is a disintegration of civility. There is no flow through the hospital, so everywhere gets clogged, etc., etc. It's just a lot. So, First, let's acknowledge that this is a really hard time in medicine. And if you think it's just your city or your state or your country, know that it is not. I speak with docs in a lot of different countries and the stories are variations of a theme. And the theme is just really hard right now. So what I wanna do on this episode is talk about three things to focus on for self-care, especially now with what's going down. So these are gonna be three relatively simple things that you think, oh yeah, those are obvious, but they're easy to forget. They're easily missed in the rush of the tumult of the workday. They're easily missed when they are not a habit. And I think that if you give them a little attention, they will repay you with compounding interest. Because in a way, we are all children of Dr. Halstead's cocaine-induced fever dream approach and mindset. All of that coming up right after this. This episode of the Stimulus Podcast is sponsored by IV Clinicians, IVY Clinicians. And here's how it works. You, emergency doc, NP or PA, you go to their website, you enter a geographic area that you're interested in for emergency department work, and then beep, boop, 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 computer noise, out comes a list of potential places with incredible detail on the inner workings of each shop. And also, what is it? What do you see there? Click here to connect with the site's in-house recruiter. Boom, connected. This levels the playing field and opens up a world of information that was until now not available. Can you believe that? Before this, finding a job in EM, it could seem like you were Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Lara Croft in Tomb Raider, swinging on vines, looking under trees, digging under rocks, cracking whips. All right, simmer down now. It was a hunt. Now you are in the driver's seat and all of this, it is free for the clinician. There are no hidden costs for you. It was created 
with you in mind. Here's what I mean. I met with Ivy's CEO, Leon Edelman. We were getting all this set up. And what I took away was that he is solving a problem that he himself experienced. He's an emergency doc. He sees his friends and colleagues feel the pain of this regularly. It's interesting. Leon and I talked about the business and he, he showed me the infrastructure of how the search engine works. And it was really quite incredible. And the thing I took away from that conversation with Leon is that he said, I really see this as a wellness tool. So many clinicians feel trapped in their current situation because it takes so much activation energy just to figure out what else is out there. Oh, Leon, you had me at hello. Over 5,500 US EDs are in this database, including Kaiser, including whatever. They're all in there, all in there for you to explore. Check out Leon and the rest of his team's incredible work at ivyclinicians.io. I want to establish a basic assumption, and hopefully we can agree on this. You will have less energy and motivation at the end of a workday compared to the beginning. And in general, you will have less energy and motivation at the end of a block of shifts than at the beginning of a block of shifts. We know this, but we don't act like we know this. So take a look for a moment at the Ironman athlete. That athlete is, at a minimum, doing an eight-hour day of continual motion. Sound familiar? For most athletes, it's going to be more like 10 hours or 12 hours or even more. Sound even more familiar? So what do these athletes do? Well, they plan ahead and they hydrate and get nutrition before it becomes an issue. In a smartly planned race, they want to eat a gel or have some kind of fuel input, fuel and liquid every 20 minutes or so, because if they don't, they're going to hit a wall. Systems will fail. And those systems, their body, their mind. And you're no different. I mean, that's a human being. You're a human being. You work in eight hour or more shifts of incredible focus and intensity. However, we have this idea that we don't have time to eat and don't have time to drink, much less go to the bathroom. It's just too busy. All right. If you are in the middle of chest compressions, if you are intubating a patient, anesthesiologists out there, if you are putting in a spinal, GI docs, if you are doing an ERCP, yes, okay. You know what? You're not going to be eating and drinking and going to the bathroom. Well, ideally. But what? percentage of an average shift is actually taken up by those things. Most of your time is frankly spent in front of a computer or talking to a patient or something not critical in an immediate time-sensitive way. Almost everything that happens in your shift has value, but do they have more value than your own self-care? One of my mentors said to me years ago that the mantra that the patient comes first can be destructive for the clinician over time. Yes, we are tireless advocates and champions for our patients, but the patient does not come first. He said, you come first because if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be able to take care of the patients. And over time, that neglect of self-care will add up. So let me ask you this. Is that time you spend in front of the computer or walking between patients, the interstitium between those moments of patient care, interaction procedure, are those interstitial moments more valuable than the time you spend in shift making sure that you are fuel and hydrated? I'm not saying you're going out to a family restaurant halfway through having a five-course meal, just something that fits in with the rest of your workflow. Now let's establish this as the question, right? Because you think, 
ah, you know, there's just so much going on and this is just another thing. So what is the cost? Got to look at cost benefit. What is the cost to you, to your department, to your clinic of putting up a boundary, of protecting the time when you refuel? And here, let me, let me make a really strong statement. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm trying not to sugarcoat this. Here is the most unsugarcoated version. Is that even the right way to say it? But I'm just going to say it the way. Saying that it is just not possible to do it, to eat or drink, is a self-imposed belief bordering on delusion. I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm saying that personally. I held this belief for years, for well over a decade. In fact, I used to deride my partners who would take a break and have a sandwich in the middle of a busy shift. I walk in the break room, what are you doing? There's patients to see. Oy vey. Oh, what a pill. All right. And we're just talking here about one shift. When you have a string of shifts, if you end that first one running on fumes and are just physiologically depleted, then the next one's just going to be that much harder. If you can stay fueled, that is one step in the direction of increasing your health span during the day and the week and the year and the years. So here is challenge number one. All right, I'm finally getting to the point. Here's challenge number one. On your next three shifts, run this experiment. The day before or the night before, plan out your fueling strategy. Really get into it. When's it going to happen? What are you going to eat? And if any of that includes in your mind saltines and graham crackers and peanut butter from the patient-only food drawer, that's not going to cut it. That's like, like the big family feud X. <clears throat> Negative, Ghost Rider. You might need to go shopping. You might need to head out to the Trader Joe's or the market or whatever. Get the stuff that's going to be Great, delightful, nutritious. It's going to really fuel you. Now, I have some friends who fast during shifts. That's great. But for most clinicians, I don't think that's going to work. Here's what I think is a reasonable strategy. And yeah, you can work this to fit your setup with you know how it works, the, the, the intervals. But here is an example. Number one, come into your shift fed and hydrated. Have the fueling planned out. Bring it with you so that you can hydrate and have a snack every two to three hours. Now, you might think, blasphemy, preposterous. This man has no ideas. There is no way that every two hours I could take a minute or two and eat to drink something. Oh, God, this is bald dash. Apologies for that accent. Well, let's just try this experiment and see how it goes. And protect that time like you would protect sewing a laceration or call in a consultation, or the other things that you do protect, that you do make time for during a shift. So night before each game day, each shift, each workday, pack a snack bag, a food bag, a lunch bag with enough fuel to hit that every two hours, every two to three hours, refuel and hydrate. Next, I want to talk about tension and relaxation. If you were at the last book club, The Art of Learning, we talked quite a bit about this. This was really important to Josh Waitzkin, the author's approach to how he played chess tournaments that would go on for like eight hours a day, days and days, weeks and weeks, tension and relaxation. If you've ever trained in the martial arts and learned how to punch, or if you've ever watched a boxer throw a punch, you know that 99% of that punch is really powerful the arm is relaxed. And that last 1%, it tenses up and that's where the power is. If you're a swimmer, 
The recovery phase of the stroke, when your arm is out of the water, totally relaxed, conserving energy. When you start paying attention to what's going on with your body, I suspect that you'll notice that during your shift, most of the time, you are holding tension. You're holding tension in your shoulders, in your back, in your arms, your face. You're holding tension and you're using energy in times when you could be saving it. When it's time to focus, focus. In those moments when you need that sympathetic activation, like a recess, reducing a fracture, whatever, yes, get that blood pumping. Prepare to fully engage. Game on. Those are the moments when you are in the arena. But most of the time, you're not in the arena. You're waiting for the show to start or the next act. Now, I don't want to get too complicated uh, about this, you know, about when to be tense, when to relax, and you know, when to be focused, when to pull back and settle. So let's make this easy and have one place or time where you focus on paying attention to what's going on with your body and breath. And that is at your workstation. Or if you don't have a workstation, when you are documenting, when you are recording. And it can help to set something to remind you to check in with what's going on in your body. It might be a post-it note that says tension or relax or somebody part of your body that tenses up or something to help trigger that check-in, the brief inventory of your state of tension or relaxation. So you sit down at your workstation or you're entering data. You've got this trigger and just notice what's going on. Are you tense? Are you relaxed? If you feel tension, where do you feel it? Is it your jaw, shoulders, back, all of it? And when you feel that's all, all invariably, there's going to be some tension. I mean, it's hard to be totally gumby or a jellyfish. I mean, you're going to be holding some. You feel that, take a breath and let it release. Just let it release. Now, there's myriad ways to do this as far as, you know, how, like, how do you do that breath? It doesn't matter. Just breathe in for a shorter interval than you breathe out. We've talked about a technique on the show in the past in through the nose for a four count, hold for a seven count, out for an eight count. In four, hold seven, out eight. Another one I've been using lately is a single reset breath. Four in the nose, and then six, count for six, out the mouth through pursed lips. Take an extra second, an extra beat. What's going on with my body? Is it tense? Is it relaxed? You feel a little tension? Take a breath. Even if not, you know what? Even if you're like, you know what? I am just chill here. Take a breath anyway. Now in the moment, doing this just one time, it's going to make a little bit of difference. A tiny little marginal gain. Maybe a 0.5% benefit. Maybe more, but it's going to be tiny. But how many of these moments will you have during your workday? How many will you have during a string of shifts, during a month, a year, a decade? That interstitial time between patient contacts is the time to recover, be a little more relaxed. You can think of that, here's, here's the callback, you can think of that as parasympathetic nurturing during your shift. This is not the time to have sympathetic activation. The goal is to be more relaxed, more settled in the interstitium. We have fueling, tension, and relaxation. And now the third tool for self-care during the shift, or actually this one, just very beginning of the shift. Now, this might not seem as obvious as the other two as far as self-care, but this is setting a clear intention for work. 
It can be an intention for the week that you carry through each day. It can be a new one for each day. It can be a combination of the two. But before you walk into the door of the clinic, the hospital, the emergency department, the operating room, the surgery center, the firehouse, the base, the tent, the law office on Main Street in Carbondale, wherever it is that you work, whatever you do, whatever you're doing, take a pause and set your intention. What is it that you're going to bring to that day? Now, germane to this conversation, it might be, I'm going to be attentive to my periods of tension and relaxation, or I'm going to bring curiosity to each encounter. I'm going to be really deliberate about refueling. I'm going to be open to accepting gratitude for my patients, my clients, my coworkers. I'm going to learn something new today. It doesn't matter. I don't know. The intention is obviously going to be your own. It's going to be meaningful to you. It can be the same intention day after day. It can be a new one each day. It doesn't matter. But set a focus. Set an intention. Now, how is this even remotely related to self-care? Well, this gets to the core of self-care, especially now when it can feel like you're being buffeted by the winds where there's just so much crap going on that it can feel or can seem like your agency, your sphere of control has diminished to the size of an electron, to the size of a quark, to the size of a, you know, what's smaller than a quark? A, I don't know, a prion or a neutrino, super small, super small. And all those things going outside of you, you know, the, the right now, the triple pandemic, the understaffing, overcrowding, the ridiculous amounts of boarding, et cetera, those are going to come at you regardless. And those things are not at least immediately in your sphere of control. So what is in your sphere of control? Your values, judgments, opinions, initiation of action. And what is the summation of those things? Values, judgments, opinions, initiation of action. The summation of those things is your intention. Intention is 100% in your sphere of control. It is the driver of your sphere of control. Now, sometimes the outcome of our intention, right? We can be set things in motion, but the outcome is not always in our control. It gets overtaken by events of the day and bringing it to bear. It's okay. That just happens. Getting overtaken by events of the day is as part and parcel to the type of work that you do. So set an intention to stoke a sense of agency. When there is no agency, it's a lot harder to experience joy. When there is agency, that is a substrate, that is a scaffolding for joy to be built upon. You might think, hey, I'm just surviving here, man. Yeah, that might be true this day or week or month, but that is not forever. This is a practice to start right now, to start building this muscle. All right. Let's wrap this up. Summary, fuel, tension, and relaxation, set an intention. Three relatively easy to execute actions for self-care. If three seems like a lot, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, where do I even start with this? Too much. Just pick one to start with. Doesn't matter which one, just start somewhere. And let me know how it goes. And that's gonna wrap it up for this episode of Stimulus. To learn more about one-on-one coaching, sign up for our newsletter, get complete show notes to this or any other podcast, just see what sort of stuff we got going on. You can find it all at our website, roborman.com. And until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.